Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries and a special Halloween edition. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And that was my best spooky ooky voice. I love that opener, Elise. <laughs> we got it. We got to get that every time. We need that energy, that Halloween energy. Okay. What am I Sunday Scaries. <laughs> Wait, do you remember at the very, very beginning of the podcast, we had that tagline? <laughs> do you remember it? <laughs> Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries, where we will give you something to actually be scared about, and we can never get through without laughing. Yeah, that was bad. I think I came up with that after a glass or two of wine. It's like look, it's like looking back at old MySpace posts, and you're like, oh, I don't know. I liked it at the time. I was like, that's perfect. What a great tagline. I oh, still you think gave it's a great me tagline. so many exclamation points when I said that through text. I'm like, I've got our tagline. I loved it. And now our tagline or at least mine, which was not intentional, is until then. And I love it. Ominous, mysterious, keeps them hanging on by thread. Now it's perfect. I'm not sure how that happened, but I don't know if it's any better than we'll give you something to be scared about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on this audio journey, Annie is taking over the mic, but first... I want to let you all know, it is Halloween. I hope you're having a wonderful time being safe trick-or-treating. If you're not, or if you don't know how to, refer back to a couple episodes back about uh, The Man Who Killed Halloween. It's a good episode for y'all to listen to. Scroll to the end to get some Halloween safe practice tips. But if you are just sitting at home and thinking, wow, I wish I had more Case of the Sunday Scaries episodes to listen to. Why have the girls only put out 25? I need more of their voices in my ear holes. Guess what? We have a huge announcement coming tomorrow. And when I say huge, maybe Annie and I are the only ones that think it's huge. But <laughs> we are very, very excited about it. We are making some changes to the podcast. If you are someone who enjoys listening to us, first of all, thank you. Second of all, you will be able to still hear us every single week, sometimes a little bit more. But if you're a person that wants to see our little faces with your eyeballs, or maybe podcasts just aren't your thing and you need to watch it like a news station, guess what? I am moving into a new place and we have built out a whole podcast space. Again, we still don't know what to call it. What did you name it, Annie? I think it should be called the Black Widow's Den because of the Black oh. Widow we saw on the doorstep that was dead. Oh, that is true. I had Annie come over to help me paint. We opened the door and this little black widow, which I've never seen one in person before. And when I say little, it was thick. It was, it was, yeah, she's thick <laughs> with two, with two C's. Thick. Uh, was just laying there dead. You, gra you grabbed Windex. <laughs> I did. I sprayed her down with Windex just to make sure. I don't know if anyone else does that to spiders, but. I will grab whatever cleaning product is around me just to make sure they're dead before I clean them because jumping spiders, absolutely no. I will literally jump higher than them if a spider jumps at me. It is terrifying. But anyway, that is all beside the point. That is a good name. We're going to add that to the queue. But we have a whole space that we are setting up to bring you video content as well. We're starting TikToks. We're going to be all over the place. You are going to be sick of us, and we hope that you still put up with us. <laughs> but we also have a really cool option for those that want to get episodes a little bit early. And guess what? We will be talking about that tomorrow because we're still giving you two episodes a week. So whether you're out with the kids having a fun time tonight, relaxing, handing out candy, going trick-or-treating, or you're wearing your most skimpiest outfit, you are flirting with everyone at the bar, you're a little hungover tomorrow, we understand that Halloween is following on a Sunday this year. We're going to give you a Monday Sunday Scary episode too just to, well, Annie, give you something to actually be scared about. <laughs> <laughs> but with that said, I'm going to shut my trap. Big announcements coming. I hope you guys tune in tomorrow. Please have a safe and happy Halloween. And with that said, Annie, please take over the mic because my mouth is tired. <laughs> Today's case is one that is particularly scary for me. I have two great fears in life, I always say. First, anything that involves the devil, possession, the devil haunting me, anything like that, and tornadoes, which is sorry for a separate day. But no joke. We both grew up in a Christian church. The scariest yep. thing ever from a baby till you're 18 and start kind of researching things on your own is, is the, the fear of the devil. Absolutely. 
No joke, as a kid, I used to cry myself to sleep thinking that the devil would possess me. And I remember walking down to my parents' bed and they would tell me, say a few Hail Marys and don't think about it. It's okay, Annie. When someone tells you not to think about something, that's like all you think about. And I would lay in my bed with my covers up to my chin and just sweat and have all my 20 stuffed teddy bears around my head. It's okay, Annie, say the Hail Mary. But like, I don't know why that fear is so, so triggering to me. But even now I'm like getting a little flustered. But yes. Growing up in the Catholic Church, you know, the number one enemy is the devil. And side note to anyone that's listening and has a partner, a romantic partner out there, if you want to uh, have a long life and a happy life, don't say these phrases. Just calm down or don't think about it. Uh -uh. (laughs) Neither of those work. Those are bad words. An unproductive communication at best. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. When I was a teenager, I had many sleepovers with my girlfriends, as we all do, and they all loved watching scary movies. I would just pretend to watch them and do that thing where you kind of look at the bottom left-hand corner of the TV screen and you're like, yeah, this is awesome, but really you're just not watching it. And one of, if not the scariest movie to date for me is the Amityville Horror. The one with Ryan Reynolds? I can honestly say I've seen about five minutes of it, so I don't know if he's in it. I can watch true crime, like the most brutal true crime documentaries, if it is real and factual and it's not anything that's, uh, what's the word, like reenactment. Amityville Horror, absolutely not. That is one movie I actually shut off, so I'm going to be terrified right right along with you. (laughs) Between the green slime coming out of the walls, the flies on the priest's face, I just cannot with this movie. This Hollywood film is based upon the murders of the DeFeo family and what happened after it. There's a lot of untrue occurrences in the Hollywood version of the movie, but today I'm only going to talk about the real-life events because truthfully, they are scary enough. This case takes us to a quaint suburban neighborhood in Amityville on the south shore of Long Island, New York, nested about 30 miles outside of New York City. The house itself is stunning. It has a terrace, a large formal dining room, a winding three-level staircase that leads up to all five bedrooms, a sunroom with a beautiful breakfast area, and the house even backs up to a river with a boat dock and a separate boathouse. So this was not a quaint little home on the river. This was a stunning mansion. I was being humble. The home was built in the 1920s and currently sits on around 10,000 square acre lot. It's still there? It's still there. 10,000 square acres? Yep. 10,000 square feet. Oh, I was like, that's a ranch, (laughs) Annie. 10,000 acres. It's the size of Manhattan. The whole river. (laughs) Start to finish and part of the ocean. (laughs) But this house has so much character. You've seen The Watcher on Netflix. This is definitely a house that I would write an ode to a house to, 100%. It's beautiful. The home was purchased by the DeFeo family, and this is where our story starts. Ronald Joseph, a.k.a. Big Ronnie, was born on November 16, 1930. When he was younger, Big Ronnie was charming and handsome. With his suave looks, he was able to attract the attention of Louise Marie Brigand. Louise was born on November 3, 1931, and her whole life, she wanted to be a model. She was beautiful and had big goals and ambitions. Those goals shifted a little bit after she met Big Ronnie, and after dating briefly, the two got married and Louise gave birth to their first son, Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr., a.k.a. Butch. Butch? How do you get Butch out of that? (laughs) He has a few nicknames throughout the episode that are just as bad as Butch. Butch was not an only child for long. Five years later, Louise gave birth to a daughter, Dawn, And over the next few years, she gave birth to Allison, Mark, and John Matthew. They were busy. They were busy, busy. They had to fill this house, which they hadn't moved into yet. But on the outside, the DeFeos appeared to live a happy life on Long Island when they moved into 112 Ocean Avenue in 1965. One of their neighbors described them as a nice, normal family. And this was a common theme for people who were on the outside looking in. As we all know, just because a house seems beautiful, and a family seems nice and normal, that isn't always the case. The family had a pretty lavish lifestyle, but the money didn't come from Big Ronnie. It came from Louise's family. More specifically, her father, Michael, who was a super successful car salesman at Mid-County Buick. At one point, he sold 468 brand new cars in only 20 months. Because of his wealth, he was able to purchase this new home for the DeFeos. This new house allowed them to move out of their cramped Brooklyn apartment 
And I can only imagine the kids' excitement when they rolled up to this gorgeous, spacious house right on the water. Talk about a fresh start. Yeah, and they all have their own rooms. That would be so exciting. They have a boathouse. I mean, all the things. Elise, you know this, but when you have a new house, you have to fill it with furniture and art. And Big Ronnie insisted the family had large portraits painted of themselves. And Michael, Luisa's father, gave them $50,000 to have some family portraits painted. Casual. Okay, wait, 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 wait. When you said art, I thought, okay, they come from wealth, or at least the wife does. They want to portray that, though. Got Big it. Ronnie wants to. But it's a little vain to have portraits of yourself done as your first pieces of artwork. And when is this the 1920s? They had pictures then. 1965. You can just get a picture, mm-hmm. a little snapshot, a little dark room action, put it together. Yep, Beautiful. It was, it was part of this wealth that Big Ronnie wanted to portray. Luis's father wasn't just a car salesman and generous man. He also was an associate of the Gambino crime family boss. Carlo Gambino himself, which comes into play a little bit later. Big Ronnie really liked to show off his wealth that he had, or rather was given, because in reality, he hadn't earned this house or the notoriety that came with it. He was kind of handed it. But he did work at Michael's car dealership, just wasn't as successful as his father-in-law. There was a dark side to Big Ronnie. He was an abusive, violent man and took out his frustrations on his wife and kids. But one child had a particularly bad his oldest child, Ronald Jr., a.k.a. Butch. Because Ronald Jr. was the firstborn and a boy, his father expected more from him. And Gig Ronnie was not afraid to discipline Ronald Jr. in the cruelest fashion. One minute he would hug his son, the next minute he would throw him across the room. Luis's brother recalls the time that Ronald Jr. was playing in the living room and Big Ronnie grabbed him by his hair and shoved him to the ground for no reason. What is wrong with people? He's a bad guy. When the DeFeos moved into their Amityville house, Ronald Jr. was 14 years old, and we all know how rough those teenage years can be, and oh boy, were they ever for this kid. He was overweight, and kids bullied him relentlessly at school, calling him mean names like Porkchop, The Blob, and Bucky the Beaver. Oh, did he have little buck teeth? He did. I think buck teeth are so cute. I agree. I think buck teeth are the cutest little thing. I had them growing up. I think they're cute. My dad has them and he has like a little gap in his teeth and I think it's adorable. You know what? You always grow into your teeth or you buy new ones in my Mm -hmm. case. (laughs) (laughs) Ronald Jr. couldn't find peace anywhere, not at home and not at school. By the time he was 17, Ronald Jr. had lost a lot of his baby weight by using drugs like LSD and heroin and also by abusing alcohol to cope with his difficult life and the bullying that took place at school and at home. That same year, he was asked to leave Amityville High School because of his behavior. As he got physically bigger, think of how quickly teenage boys grow. The fights between son and father only got worse, and Ronald Jr. became physically aggressive towards his family. There's one report that during a fight, he pulled out a gun on Big Ronnie, and his neighbor saw it. But he's had a lifetime of abuse and can't even get a reprieve. Like, he goes to school, it should be your safe spot. It's clearly not for him. You know, Bucky the Beaver and all that stuff. That's not nice. And And then he goes called Butch by your family at a young age, like. Well, I don't know. Maybe that was a common nickname at the time. True. It's just not, it's not my choice of nicknames for someone. (laughs) But it's just sad. But also you could see why he would go to extreme measures, especially if he's on drugs to defend himself, especially once he's big enough to finally defend himself. Because as a kid, you're not. No, and he has all these emotions. He doesn't feel safe anywhere. He's constantly in fight or flight mode. Yeah, it's just a really sad upbringing. I'm a firm believer that all that kind of stuff plays into later adulthood, and it does for Ronald Jr. Oh, no. Big Ronnie and Louise were desperate to get their son help, and they tried psychiatrists, then resorted to bribes, offering him expensive gifts but nothing seemed to make him happy or less angry. At age 18, Ronald Jr. began working for his father and was given a weekly paycheck, whether or not he showed up for work. (gasps) That's my type of job. (laughs) He's 18 years old. He was working in the service department doing oil changes, tune-ups, and car washes. He openly admitted that he took advantage of working for the family, and he once told a psychiatrist that he could do whatever he wanted because his father was his boss. Uh, Don't blame him. 18 years old, no one wants to work. You're getting a paycheck regardless of if you show up or not. In the weeks leading up to the DeFeo murders, 
Ronald Jr. threatened his father with a gun during an argument. Once again, his father had trusted him with making a $20,000 deposit for the dealership, but Ronald Jr. said that the money was stolen, that he was robbed, and his father just did not believe him, which caused the argument. When police questioned Ronald Jr. about the robbery, he was described as being uncooperative and even violent to law enforcement. In November of 1974, Ronald Jr. was 23 years old and still working for his father. He was on probation at the time after pleading guilty to stealing a boat motor. He said that he kept the job at the dealership because he could come and go as he pleased. Plus, he needed pay stubs to show his probation officer. <laughs> if you think <laughs> if you think Ronald's a menace, it is about to get so much worse. I do have to say, though, it sounds like a, they needed a lot less abuse and a little bit more structure structure in this home and accountability. Like, you show up for work, you get a paycheck. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that we're going to beat you down if you don't show up, but... You're not going to get paid. Little Mr. Butch could do with some rules and regulations. Absolutely. In the early hours of November 13th, 1974, while the family slept, Ronald Jr. grabbed a 35 caliber Marin rifle, walked into his parents' bedrooms, and fatally shot his mom and dad. He then went into his siblings' bedrooms where they were still asleep, shot his sister, Dawn, who was 18, Allison, who was 13, Mark, who was 12, and John Matthew, who was only nine years old. After killing his family, Ronald Jr. took a shower, got dressed, and collected all incriminating evidence. On his way to work, he threw the evidence, including the gun, into a storm drain. Then he went about his day. What? Annie, I didn't know any of... I guess I should because, have kept watching the movie. No, I think the movie is focused around the hauntings. Remember, it's a Hollywood version. Like, oh. I did not know all this about the DeFeo family either. And truthfully, I don't know if they get into it in the movie. Wow. Did the mom and the kids do? I understand, like, the hatred towards the dad. It's part of the big mystery. Because he was working in his family's car dealership, people asked him, hey, where's Big Ronnie? Why didn't he come to work today? And Ronald Jr. made excuses and kind of brushed off the questions, saying that he hadn't heard from his family, so he didn't know. He then decided to take a half day, and he left work to hang out with some friends and was once again very vocal about how he had not heard from his family and he could not get a hold of them. The fact that he was able to carry on with his daily routine and his life after killing his family just chills my bones. That's a sociopath. Mm -hmm. Or someone that has completely disassociated with what happened. Yeah. Eventually, Ronald Jr. decided it was time to discover his family. He put on the act of a lifetime and ran to a bar close to his family's house. Wait, what do you mean by eventually? He was just living later with on this that dead... No, oh. no, it was later that night. Oh, because yeah, no that's worries. a whole nother level no. of gross. He, right. He has issues, but he eventually wanted to find them later that day. So he ran to this bar. He's screaming for help, asking bar goers to come back. He said that someone had shot his entire family and that he needed them to come back to the house and help them. A few people did, and what they saw when they got to the house shocked them. Each member of the DeFeo family was found laying face down in bed in their pajamas with fatal bullet wounds. Big Ronnie and Luis DeFeo had both been shot twice and their children had been shot one time each. I'm going to talk about the brutality of this crime. So if you don't want to hear this, I'm going to give a little trigger warning. I'm kind of going to go into depth. And I'll put the time lapse in the show notes for you guys if you want to skip ahead. Perfect. Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Howard Adelman would later determine that the DeFeo family bled to death in their bed due to gunshot wounds. Big Ronnie, age 43, was shot twice. One bullet exploded into his kidney and exited through his chest onto the bed. The other bullet entered the top of his spine and was lodged into his neck. Big Ronnie could have been alive for a few seconds to several minutes after being shot. The waistband of his shorts was pulled down a bit, indicating that he had moved upward as he died, so kind of slithering to get away. Louise, who was also 43, was also shot twice. The bullets entered her right leg and chest. One bullet landed on the mattress, and the other came out of the middle of her chest, re-entered her left breast and wrist. The bullet shattered into her rib cage, splintered her bone, and destroyed most of her right lung, diaphragm, and liver. So she probably had her hand or arm over her chest at the time probably. of impact. Yeah, that makes sense. Although face down, her chest was slightly raised from the bed and her body was turned to the right. 
The medical examiner said that she could have been alive for several minutes after being shot, perhaps as many as 10 minutes. And her position indicated that she might have woken up, raised her upper body off the bed, and possibly looked toward the direction of the killer. See, when you first said that they were all face down, I was assuming that they had been moved or placed that way. But it seems like they're all belly sleepers. Yeah. Which I cannot relate to. No, I can't either. I'm a hard slide sleeper. It's like, oh, he moved their bodies. But it sounds like from the ME's report that that's how they were all sleeping. Oh, this is so tragic. Mark, age 12, and John, age 9, were both shot in the back at close range. The medical examiner determined that the killer stood between the beds less than two feet away. The bullets penetrated the liver, diaphragm, lungs, and heart of each boy. The bullets went through the boys' mattresses and onto the box springs. John's spinal cord was severed, which may have caused involuntary twitching in the lower body. Allison, age 13, was shot once in the face from less than two feet away. She may have been turning around and saw the muzzle of the gun, according to the report. The bullet entered her left cheek and moved to her right ear. It then tore into her brain and damaged her skull. The bullet exited, ripped through the mattress, hit the back wall, and ricocheted to the floor. Don, age 18, was shot at the back of the neck from two and a half feet away. The bullet entered just below her left ear and blasted through the left temple into her pillow. The left side of her face was collapsed. I give these details to show how close Ronald got to them. I mean, he had to look at them. I mean, if they're thinking that they're turning like they hear a noise in the night, Obviously, they might have been turning just from the sound of these gunshots going off in their Mm -hmm. home. Like, I'm honestly welling up because I just cannot imagine. How he could do that. And there's part of me that can understand the the rage towards the father. I can understand that. You've been abused your whole life. But to these innocent kids. Yep. And this is a common question that actually comes into play during trial. How can Ronald Jr. shoot his parents, walk into his sibling's room, And they're still asleep, right? That's like one of the overlying questions that I'll get into in just a minute. Police were called to the bloody scene and found a very shocked and distressed Ronald Jr. He started telling the authorities this wild story of how the mafia had targeted the family after some bad business dealings, and the mafia had been the ones to shoot his family. Remember, the DeFeo men were closely associated with the Italian mafia. One thing we know about the mob... They do not hurt women and children. I was going to say they ended up in Lake Mead. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Well, that might be true. The jury's still out. We're waiting for DNA if you heard that episode. But you are exactly right. That's off limits. And that is what planted the seed of doubt into the police's head. First was the fact that Ronald's timeline did not add up. He would say he was here according to time of death. It put him here. All the things weren't lining up. But also, the Italian mafia has a very strict code of conduct of what they can and can't do. As it turns out, children and women are off limits, and killing them directly violates this code of conduct. I'm impressed with your mafia knowledge, Elise. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) I really should have been a detective back in the day. Truly. Where's my time machine? (laughs) (laughs) The following day, Ronald Jr. confesses to the police that he did it. He was quoted as saying, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It happened so fast. No, I'm sorry, Butch. You are officially being called Butch by me. I'm bullying you in death, although you're getting into a haunting, so maybe I need to choose my words (laughs) a little bit more carefully. But this couldn't be fast. He's walking around a mansion-sized house, room to room, annihilating these people. Maybe the gunshot and the death was fast, and hopefully for these people it was. Mm -hmm. But, like, no one's buying your bullshit, Butch. No, and the next day was so planned out for him. He went to work. He made sure he was seen by his coworkers. He then went out with friends. He had planned this. Yeah, he's creating an alibi. So back to this paranormal piece that I kind of hinted at earlier, where people did not understand how they could all be flying face down. The kids didn't wake up and run away. He shot Big Ronnie then shot Louise, and she may have been turning, but she was still laying face down. This is where these paranormal pieces of this of this story start coming into play. During Ronald Jr.'s trial in October of 1975, his lawyer, William Weber, was trying to establish an insanity plea, and he built up his case by saying that Ronald Jr. was insane 
and that a demonic voice and creature helped him with these crimes. Annie, may I interrupt you really quick? Can you remind me how old was Butch when this happened? 23 years old. Hmm. So not a kid. Not a kid, but also that is when schizophrenia comes into play for most adults. Mm -hmm. They don't know it until well past the age of 18. Mm -hmm. The main fact that this lawyer was saying was the question we've talked about already. How could people sleep through the gunshots? The lawyer went on to say that Ronald Jr. thought he was killing his family in self-defense because of what this demon told him. The lawyer then went on to claim that Ronald Jr. would become possessed by a demon. At one point during the trial, he was shown a picture of his mother and claimed that he didn't know who she was. Psychiatrist Daniel Schwartz supported the insanity plea, but a different doctor countered on behalf of the prosecution, saying that although Ronald Jr. was a user of heroin and LSD, he had an antisocial personality disorder and was aware of his actions at the time of this crime. Because of this demonic factor and the sheer brutality of the crime, this case gained national attention. During trial, other odd pieces of the crime were questioned. Not only did the family seemingly sleep through this horror, but no neighbors heard gunshots despite the fact that Ronald did not use a silencer. Ronald openly claimed that he had drugged his family at dinner and that's how they slept through it. But experts noted that due to the time of death, Too long a time had passed between dinner and the murders, and no drugs were found in their system. I'm so confused by this. It's a confusing case. Perhaps most chilling is the motive for killing the whole family, which still remains uncertain. It's clear that Ronald Jr. had many issues with his father, but it baffled many that he would go after the rest of his family members, especially his youngest siblings, whom he had never had any issues with. If you do any research into this case, you're going to see a theory that I'm going to touch upon very lightly, but I'm not going to give it much smoke. There's one theory that Dawn, the oldest sister, helped Ronald Jr., and that's how the family slept through it. They had Dawn in one room, Ronald in the other. At the end of the day, Dawn is dead. I don't want to blame or bring her into it, but I also don't want our listeners being like, you left out this big piece of the story that could potentially be the why, you know, the missing puzzle piece. So this theory is she was part of it and then he turned on her, but just to speed things up. Exactly. His lawyer even goes in to say like there was gunshot residue on Don, meaning that she could have been the one to pull the trigger. I think Ronald did it. I'm like 100% positive. So I'm just going to go with that theory. Ronald Jr. was found guilty of six counts of second degree murder in November, shortly after his trial began. He would later be sentenced to six consecutive sentences of 25 years to life in prison, one for each of the family members. Throughout his life, Ronald made multiple attempts to free himself, growing increasingly resentful of the attention he received in prison. He changed his story of what happened during the Amityville murders multiple times, at certain points claiming that his mother or sister had committed some of the killings. He remained in prison until the day he died at age 69, just last year in 2021. What? Sorry, that's going to be really loud. I know. I was not. I was really surprised that it was that recently that he passed away. Like, I didn't. I don't remember seeing anything in the news about it. Wow. Well, we were in the middle of a panorama. True. We had a lot going on. Before he died, he said, quote, I guess the Amityville Horror really is supposed to be me because I'm the one that got convicted of killing my family. I'm the one they said who did it. I'm the one that's supposed to be possessed by the devil, end quote. I'm still not buying his shit. He certainly had motive for hating his dad and maybe just like rage and like the drug abuse mm-hmm. took over. But yeah, yeah that's... the family piece is weird. That's oh my the God, sp- sorry. Oh my God, I just got so spooked. Hey, what is it? <laughs> I'm sitting here listening to this, already clenching my thighs in anticipation for the terrible stuff you're going to continue to tell me. Uh-huh. And a light just goes on and the silhouette of my neighbor, who I don't know very well (laughs) at all, I couldn't even tell you his name, is just looking my direction in full silhouette. Oh, my gosh. That's terrifying. God, he's probably just taking out the trash, minding his own business, but I can't wait for our podcast studio where we can't see things like this (laughs) in the middle of you talking about a haunting. A silhouette just emerges in your window. (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) Annie, can we sage my new house before we start recording there? Please. I'll pick up some sage. Okay. We have to do it before you move a lot of the stuff in. I think that's like the number one rule of sage. Okay. Continue. We can do it. That's oh, the, the light st- just went out. <laughs> oh, gosh. He knows we're talking about him. 
He's that's- cute. <laughs> I'm not confusing off the episode. You're like, but wait, he's kind of cute. <laughs> incredible. Continue on. That's the story of Ronald. <laughs> I can't. I can't. We have the giggles now. Okay, I'm really good. Go ahead. Okay. That's the story of Ronald DeFeo and the DeFeo family. But the story of the Amityville horror is far from over. In December 1975, a little over a year after the murders, a new family moved into the DeFeo's house. Why? Well, they got a smoking deal. They only paid $80,000 and they knew about the, the murders. So it was too good for them to pass up. They were newlyweds, George and his wife, Kathy, and then three children from her previous marriage. They needed a place to stay. They found the smoking deal, this house right on the river. Don't realtors have to disclose that? They disclosed it. Bad life choices, guys. Right. <laughs> George even said it was a dream come true. And even though the house had a chilling past, he wasn't worried. The family could handle it. <laughs> I know. Sure, Dan. I always say that. Sure, Dan. Because of what had happened in their new home, a Catholic priest stopped by the day before the family moved in to bless the house at the request of Kathy. So we're going to sage your house, Elise. They had a priest come bless their house. Smart move, unless they got a hot neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> The priest, Father Ralph, said the following about his time at the house. I was blessing the sewing room, and it was cold. It was really, really cold in there. I'm like, well, gee, this is peculiar, because it was a lovely day out, and it was winter, yes, but it didn't account for that kind of coldness. I was also sprinkling holy water, and I heard a rather deep voice behind me saying, get out. It seemed so directed toward me that I was really quite startled. I felt a slap at one point on the face, but there was nobody there, end quote. The priest let the family know about this encounter, but at that point, the family were so close to moving in that they went ahead and did it. In the movie, you will see flies come around the priest's face. That is all Hollywood, baby. That did not happen. It was a good, good point of the show. So I was like, oh my gosh. I remember briefly seeing that through my little fingers that were barely opened, pretending to be cool and watch this movie. The Lutz family stayed at the residence for just 28 days before fleeing the house in terror. Oh, they noped it. They noped it real hard. They were claiming that the house was haunted by the spirits of the deceased DeFeos. Let's get into those uh, odd haunted happenings, shall we? No. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on to your pants. Go get your hot neighbor. Tell him to come over. (laughs) Have you ever heard that saying that if you wake up at the exact same time every morning or night, there's something spiritual watching over you? Yeah, but I thought it was a good thing. It was a bad thing, for George at least. He woke up every single morning at 3.15 a.m. This was around the time that the DeFeo murders were believed to have happened based upon their body temperature by the time they were discovered. Isn't 3 o'clock also the witching hour or something? I think so. Yeah, 3 o'clock is definitely the witching hour. George also spoke of weird odors that would come and go from the house with no distinct origin. Didn't find a lot of detail about this, but I'm just picturing this softing, super odd smell where he can't figure out where it's coming from. He can't clean up anything because there's nothing there. He said the front door would slam shut in the middle of the night, and the whole family talked about how cold the house was, similarly to what the priest said. No matter what George did, the house would not stay warm. This part about the house being cold really stood out to me. If you've ever watched any ghost hunting shows or videos, the hunters always speak about concentrated cold spots in certain locations. Experts have said that the reason why this happens is because ghosts need energy to manifest themselves. Therefore, they draw upon the heat of where they are manifesting. George said the family kept the fireplace burning day and night in an attempt to stay warm. Now, we have a fireplace at our house. It is much smaller than the DeBeo's house, but it heats up within a couple hours. So the fact that George had this fireplace going day and night and the house was still freezing, and then you know about that, a ghost manifestation taking all the heat, it makes sense why they were getting spooked. George said that one night he heard his children's beds slamming up and down on the floor. Nope, nope. You're finishing the rest of this episode on your own. <laughs> I'm getting used funds too. But he was unable to do anything because he was immobilized in bed by an unseen force. What? So imagine hearing your kids in their bedrooms, their beds going crazy, and you physically cannot get up to go check on them. I don't want to imagine that, Annie. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Another weird thing George talked about was how at times 
his wife would physically transform into an old woman and would levitate above the bed. That part to me is one of the creepiest pieces that he talked about because he's waking up 315 like, oh, no, it's 315. He looks over. His wife's not in the bed. He looks up. There she is. And she's now an old woman. The only thing that confuses me about that, though, is why would she be old? Because the mom wasn't old. And this is only a year after the murder. So it's not like she had aged in that house. Maybe, I, I mean, they say stress ages you. Yeah, they do. This poor woman. They was didn't have really Botox stressed. back then. No, especially Botox for the afterlife. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder if, like, there was a demon if he was trying to like shapeshift. I hate everything about this. I am holding my own hands right now to console myself, and I just feel like it's probably going to get worse. Mm-hmm. The family lasted just under a month in the house before they tossed in the towel and called it quits. They moved out in a total panic. And they left possessions behind, including clothes in their closet and food in their fridge. They were absolutely done with the house after what they had experienced in just that short month. I know that financially speaking, a lot of people can't just up and leave a house. But I do have respect for them for doing that because I've seen so many documentaries and so many movies where people just stay in the house. Once again, I understand it's probably a financial reason they can't do it. But I don't know. They got out after 28 days. They had enough happen. Order something cheap off Amazon. It comes in giantly big boxes for what you order. It's always like twice the size of the item. Go live in the box. Go live in the (laughs) unhaunted box. Is she buying a tent? (laughs) Nope. You don't need a tent. You just Just go sit in that box, honey. Get out of that house. Especially whenever you have little kiddos. Two months after the Lutz family moved out, a local TV crew did a segment on the house bringing in ghost hunters and paranormal experts to evaluate the couple's claims. One of the researchers, Lorraine Warren, remembers an overwhelming feeling of horrible depression in the house. Yes, you probably know her name. Her and her hubby are super famous. Yep, and they came in and looked at this house. The team also took a series of time-lapse photos of the upstairs landing. None of the photographs showed anything out of the ordinary except one which had the face of what appears to be a little boy peering out from one of the bedrooms. This photo of this little ghost boy sends chills down my spine. Elise, I'm going to send it to you. Tell me what you think. Oh, I don't want to open this. No, that's not real. It is real. There were that. Yep. That was my exact emotion was like speechless because what's really sad is right next to on this photo I'll post, um, you see the little boy, John DeFeo, who was a nine-year-old. That's him. Yeah, it's him. You guys, if you take a picture of your animal at night and their like eyes kind of reflect back at you, this boy's eyes are glowing, but the haircut is the same. The little nose. His little cute button nose, but he has this like a... How would you describe it? I would say curiosity. He's like, what are you doing here? And like loneliness. But then look at his mouth. It looks like almost just red. It does. Lorraine Warren did say there was this horrible, depressing feeling in the house. So the little boy's face kind of shows that. Oh, but you know, that little boy was so stinking cute. But I know, that is, I mean, that is him. The haircut is the same. He has like that Bieber haircut and mm-hmm. real, like when he was alive that he probably twitched his head a lot like Bieber did to yeah. like get his bangs out of his face. And you just see this little boy peeking over the stairs with tousled bedhead. It's adorable. I mean, as terrifying as the ghost photo is, it is heartbreaking because this image was captured by Gene Campbell, who is a professional photographer, and he's part of Ed and Lorraine Warren's team. Gene had set up an automatic camera that took infrared pictures to capture the second floor landing during the night. Equipped with black and white film, his camera captured this little Amityville ghost boy photo that some have speculated could be the ghost of the murdered child, John DeFeo, which I completely agree with because of the similarities. Never seen a picture like this. They would have had to hire someone, like a little actor that looked just like mm-hmm. John DeFeo and then have him there. But how the hell? I mean, I've seen like flash photography make people's eyes look red in pictures, but this boy's eyes are huge and hollowed out and glowing. And this is the 19... 19- 60s at this point you don't have like editing equipment to make this look altered oh that picture is really sad all of the psychics who went to the house during this period of time all agreed there was some kind of demonic force present in that house after they moved out things returned to normal for the lutz family and george began to wonder if it was the house's horrors that had driven ronald jr defeo to kill his family his thought was maybe it was possessed before then and it chose ronald to kind of do all the bad things that the demon wanted to do. 
It'd be interesting to know about the people that had the house before the DeFeos. We'll get into ones who had the house after. But there have been some questions over the validity of the Lutz's claims and the supposed happenings that took place. There was so much skepticism that after telling their story, George and Kathy both took a lie detector test to prove their innocence. They passed. People think that the family lied about this paranormal activity because of the legal and financial issues the couple had. Skeptics believed they had the motive to create a fantastical story to sell to the public. The Lutz family did collaborate with the author named Jay Anson. He wrote the best-selling book, The Amityville Horror, and sold a casual 6 million copies. But the family has said they never signed a contract with him and that the book and the successful film spinoff netted them $300,000. You know, they kind of said, well, this happened to us and we were working with this guy who's going to make a book and a movie and this is what happened and we never signed a contract and we made this much money. Well, even if it's a true story about a killer and stuff, they will give their side of things and stuff too. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're in it for a money, you know, a cash grab. 100%. And I mean, they had to leave the house in 28 days. I wouldn't fault them if they did want to right. get a cash grab. And they got a smoking deal. So even if they had financial issues, it wasn't like they paid, you know, a ton of money for this house. I mean, 80000 is not it's not a small chunk of change, but for what they got, like they got a pretty good deal. Another point skeptics call out is that the Lutz's former lawyer, who fell out with them over money issues, came out in 1979 claiming the three of them came up with the horror story over many bottles of wine. Same. Also, no, no. <laughs> the lawyer also wanted to write a book about his clients, and he enlisted a guy named Hans Holzer, who was a professor of paranormal psychiatry and also a self-guided ghost catcher and also an author of dozens of books, to help him craft the book. Here's what happened, basically. This guy was a lawyer for the family. He wanted to cash in on the money as well. So he hired this guy who was like a ghost hunter to write this book for him. Yeah, he's lawyering. No mm -hmm. offense to any lawyers out there. But. Yeah. In 1977, Hans Holzer visited the Amityville house with a medium who claimed to be able to talk to the dead. According to Hans's account, the medium went into a trance and said there was a Native American chief on the warpath in the house because the house had been built on the site of a sacred burial ground. See? This goes back to last episode. Do not mess uh -uh. with burial grounds. Do not. Hans believes Ronnie DeFeo Jr. was possessed by the angry spirit of the Native American chief, and the chief will not leave that house until it burns down and leaves the land bare. However, Members of the Monotuk tribe of Long Island are very skeptical of these theories, saying there are no records of a burial ground in Amneville. Even if there were, Chief Straight Arrow Cooper said, that doesn't mean we would go into somebody's body and capture their soul and control it in a very negative way. That's just not who we are. So to that theory, I don't know what I think about it. I mean, I trust Chief Straight Arrow Cooper mostly for his name, which is awesome, but also <laughs> if they're not, you know, he's saying like, we would never do that. Our tribe isn't going to do that to someone. So who knows? George, who died in 2006, maintained that his story was real, telling ABC News, I can just say what I experienced firsthand. Let's talk about other people of the Lutz family because they have an opinion as well. George's stepsons also had a few things to say about what they experienced during their childhood. Daniel, who was 10 years old at the time, said that George invited mysterious and dangerous forces into their lives due to his interest in the occult. The occult, in the broadest sense, is a category of supernatural beliefs and practices which generally fall outside the scope of religion and science, encompassing phenomenon including otherworldly agency such as magic, sorcery, and mysticism and their varied spells. Daniel now lives a quiet life in Queens, New York as a stones mason and claims the house ruined his whole life and that he continues to have nightmares to this day. Oh, yeah, he sounds bitter about mm -hmm. those 28 days. He does. George's other stepson, Christopher, who was seven years old when he lived in the house, came forward in 2005 to say the events in the Amityville Horror books and movies had been stretched to the point of fiction. Christopher also agreed with his brother that George was obsessed with the occult and had exaggerated some paranormal instances he believed occurred when he was a child. So I 
totally believe these two little kids. But I can also say that what George experienced doesn't mean the kids experienced it. So I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting. But also, like we say, kids are normally more open to things. But at that age, would you remember stuff? Like it could be suppressed or if they were sleeping when this stuff happened. But also, you know me, I love to play devil's advocate. If the dad or stepdad was really interested in the occult and all things paranormal, if he had the intention openly or privately to himself, the intention of, yeah, this is a smoking good deal, but wow, like think about like what happened in this house and the mystery of like being in that home. Maybe it opened him up a little bit more to experiencing it. Like we said in past episodes, like we were taught you don't play with things like a Ouija board mm-hmm. and stuff like that because it opens you up to some bad experiences or bad things coming your way even if you're doing it in in jest. So maybe his fascination opened him up to even more because he was seeking it out in a way. I can totally see that. I don't know. I don't like any of it. I don't either. <laughs> Honestly, I'm glad that's all the way across the country in Long Island. Like, you just stay over there. Is the house still there? Yeah. You're probably going to get to that. I'm sorry. I just have so many follow-ups. You're actually getting there right now. The notorious house has passed through the hands of several owners since the Lutzes. And no one else has reported any spooky happenings. The Amityville house officially sold in February of 2017 to an undisclosed owner for $605,000, which was $200,000 less than the original asking price. It had previously been owned by four other families since the murders, one of which had changed the address to 108 Ocean Avenue because of all the tourists and people who would stop by 112. But That doesn't matter because the house is all over the internet, so it's pretty easy to still find. What really happened all those years ago is a mystery and perhaps one of America's greatest ones at that. We are going to definitely post a poll about this one. Do you think the house was haunted and that's what caused all these horrific things? Do you think the Lutzes maybe lied a little bit, got a little bit of uh, exaggeration going? Or do you think that I guess those are only two options. <laughs> Something's definitely weird about that house. I have a theory. Okay, let's hear it. I love whenever Elise gets her theory hat on. <laughs> it's my favorite. And I, I always point my finger up in there like I'm Sherlock Holmes <laughs> yes. or something. I have a theory. <laughs> LSD is a hallucinogen. Mm-hmm. Heroin is tough shit. I see where you're going and I like it. So what if I just talked about, like, you know, if you're looking for something or whatever, He's gone through a lot of bullying. He's gone through a lot of stuff. I'm not trying to excuse this action by any stretch of the imagination. But if he was on hallucinogenic drugs plus heroin, which you're not sober Mm -hmm. of sober mind when you're on heroin, right? I've watched Intervention. It looks very loosey-goosey in the brains of those Mm -hmm. people when they're on drugs. Like I'm a person and I'll say it right now. Whatever you believe is fine. But I am someone that's still very much, while I don't necessarily subscribe to all the doctrine stuff I was taught, believes in spiritual warfare, good Mm -hmm. and evil, and the Mm -hmm. balance between the two. Agree. So if his brain is full of all these heavy emotions, pain, suffering brought on by his dad, and then you add drugs to the mix, people take LSD and have trips that like they see all these lights they're more connected with the universe they you know all these things that are reported about hallucinogenic drugs if your heart is hurting is it that crazy to think that he was on maybe a bad trip and it wasn't necessarily that he was possessed but that to him he probably felt that way because he was seeing all these things brought on by his drug use and pain that he had gone through so valid because if he's hearing voices and seeing things, that's LSD. I mean, Dude, yes, right. he could have some other mental health issues for sure. But just LSD in of itself is an experience or so I'm told. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think it's that unreasonable to think right. if you're a person that grew up in an existential amount of pain, not only physically, but through bullying, that you would take these drugs and your brain would be in a very altered chemical state that you could believe that you were talking to a demon who wanted you to kill your family because you've opened yourself up completely to either a path of enlightenment through drug use or a path of destruction. That's a really good point. What what I cannot get over is how the family slept through it, you know? Yeah, that part. And also, everyone sleeps on their stomach? That's weird to me. But it could have been, think about it, if boys, they were shot in the back. They could have been on their side and then fallen on their face. Oh, that that's makes my only sense. thought with that. 
Okay, that makes more sense. I'm thinking like full face in a pillow. Mm-hmm. It's so sad how young they were. I mean, I think whenever you, if you watch the Amityville for it focuses more on the paranormal pieces, the green slime, like I said earlier, the flies and the priests. But really knowing the story of the DeFeos, especially the kids, I think is way scarier than any kind and of. so much more tragic. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm sorry for your 28 days. That must have been terrifying, whatever it is you experienced. But the ending of this family's life is so incredibly tragic i didn't know that piece whatsoever movies just skip over and then the little ghost boy oh no yeah i was trying to put that on my mind so sad annie is gonna have to share that picture but be warned it looks it almost looks too real where i see Mm -hmm. where people are skeptic about it for sure but look at the nose the nose is what gets me you're right annie like that is the little nose exact same little button nose and floppy little hair i don't know i don't love it but the warns were also very much known for movie deals and things like that. We got to get into the Warrens and do... We'll do that. We'll do a little mini. Oh, it wouldn't be a mini because they're (laughs) also the ones that investigated The Conjuring House. I was torn between doing The Conjuring or this one. And then I just got so wrapped up in the DeFeos and I was like, I'm doing this one, but we can do The Conjuring too. That'd be a good one. Well, let us know if you want us to cover The Warrens and The Conjuring. But if you're listening to this at nighttime, sweet dreams. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be waking up at 3.15. And if you do, I hope it's only a cute neighbor that you see in your window. <laughs> actually, I just I don't want you to see anything in your window, actually, because no. I don't want a neighbor Close peeking your into your window, no matter how <laughs> cute they are. <laughs> anyway, I will be back tomorrow with special announcements and a very special episode that details what's going to be happening with the Case of the Sunday Scaries podcast as we move forward. But as always, until then, and happy. Happy Halloween!